Hello everyone and welcome to the third season of the History of Modern Greece, where we cover the subject of the fall of Constantinople to the modern day. I am your host, Daniel Roberts, and I'm here with my father, George. Hi, my name is George. And our music is brought to you by Mark Youngerman. Season 3, Episode 90, The First Crusade, Part 6, The Battle of Antioch. While the Crusaders camped outside the walls of the great city of Antioch, an army was amassing in the Near East. This army was being spearheaded by a man named Kerboga. But who was Kerboga? Do you remember the great Seljuk Empire? Not the Sultanate of Rum, but the first mighty Seljuk Empire. The one that conquered the Abbasid Caliphate and all of Iran, Iraq, Syria, and Central Asia. Well, Kerboga was a Turk from the great Seljuk Empire. In fact, before the Crusade was a devout follower of the Malik Shah, the third sultan of the great Seljuk Empire. When Malik Shah was assassinated in 1092, Kerboga was loyal to the family and supported Malik Shah's wife and son as rightful rulers of the great Seljuk Empire. This period saw great factional infighting within the Sultanate. Many saw this as an opportunity to take the position of sultan for themselves. Kerboga was loyal to the Sultana, but this also meant being loyal to a four-year-old governing the greatest empire in the world, and that put him in a peculiar position. No one legitimately wants a four-year-old ruling over them, but they also don't want to be in a position where they are found guilty of treason and conspiracy. A collapsing empire can be a very dangerous place, but as a wise man once said, Chaos is a ladder. Who's to say if Kerboga saw this as an opportunity to put himself in a high position of power? So, who had claim over the Seljuk Empire at the death of Malik Shah? Well, there was his wife, the Sultana. Then there was a Malik Shah's brother, Tutush. He would have never been able to claim the empire as his own if his brother didn't die while all his sons were below age. So Tatush instantly claimed the Sultanate was his by right of being an adult. But the Malik Shah also had sons. The youngest was a four-year-old named Mahmud. But there was also an older brother named Berkyak. But he was only 11. But now, out of all those three choices, it's fair to say the adult should reign. But then you have to factor in regencies. So then you could say, okay... Give it to Malik Shah's eldest son. But that's not what happened. The wife of Malik Shah wanted her youngest son to reign. And so the four-year-old boy was proclaimed sultan and ruler of the great Seljuk Empire. If you can't get the hint yet, the great Seljuk Empire was in a bit of a crisis. Kerboga was loyal to the sultana and therefore supported the four-year-old Mahmud as a legitimate ruler of the greatest empire on the planet. The trouble is, a lot of people supported the older son, and their supporters met in battle, and the side that backed the four-year-old lost. And shortly after, the Sultana and four-year-old Sultan were assassinated. My God, this reminds me of Alexander the Great's empire. 
So now that Mahmud is dead, the older brother, Brikyak, was proclaimed sultan in 1094. But he didn't have complete control over the sultanate either, as his uncle still proclaimed himself the sultan, that being the man named Tatush. Kerboga backed the four-year-old, and now the four-year-old was dead. So Kerboga faced a dilemma. Who does he back next? Instead of choosing to back the older brother, Brikyak, he chose to put his allegiance behind the Seljuk prince Ismail bin Yakidi. But when the two armies faced each other in battle, Brikyak was again successful. So this is twice in two years that Kerboga had backed the wrong side in the civil wars. But he was not going to make that mistake again and back the eldest son of Malik Shah, the Sultan Burkiak. Kerboga was sent to fight Tutush, the Sultan's uncle. But this battle did not go well, and Kerboga was captured and imprisoned. He laid in the cell for almost two years. While he sat in the prison cell, Tutush brought his armies to Sultan Burkiak in an attempt to take the entire Seljuk Empire for himself. But fate had other plans, and Tutush's army was overran and he was killed. With Tutush now dead, the tiny sultanate of Syria was divided by his two sons. Ridwan took the principality of Aleppo, while his other son, Dukak, took the principality of Damascus. With all this infighting, the Seljuk Empire cracked and split into smaller factions, all of them focused on fighting each other. Ridwan saw Kerboga rotting in his cell and had him released. But this left the question, what does Kerboga do now? Does he side with Sultan Burkyak or the cousin of Sultan Ridwan? If you guessed the Sultan Burkyak, you would be wrong. Does that mean he side with Ridwan? Also no. He decided to back the Abbasid Caliph and attack the city of Aleppo. At this point, it's impossible to say whose side Kerboga was on. My best guess, as an armchair historian, is that Kerboga was looking out for only one man, and that was himself. If you find yourself confused by all these events, we can sum it up in a few sentences. Kerboga switched sides so many times in the power struggle that he seems to be a modern version of Alcibiades. <laughs> Comment? <laughs> also, the Seljuk Empire had fractured the same way Alexander the Great's empire fractured after his death. But Kerboga was a determined man and it seems like he had his sights on the entire Seljuk Sultanate. When word made it to Baghdad that a Christian army had conquered Nicaea and Cilicia and now was laying siege to the city of Antioch, Kerboga smelt an opportunity. If he could defeat this mighty crusader army, he would have the credibility to take the entire Seljuk Empire and crown himself the Sultan, and maybe even take the title of Caliph. He traveled around the Middle East and rallied as many troops as he could find. He rallied Arabs and Persians and Turks and anyone who would join his cause. 
It took time, but Kerboga managed to muster a multi-ethnic, diverse army from a dozen nations and marched them out of Baghdad and made his way into Syria. We will just say it here. This army Kerboga had mustered was greater than anything the Crusaders could handle. It didn't matter how tough Bohemon was or how dedicated the Crusaders were to the cause. This army was going to destroy the Crusaders as soon as they made contact. They marched up the Fertile Crescent and passed out of Mesopotamia and entered Syria. But as they got closer to Antioch, they discovered that an attack on Antioch would leave their rear open to a counterattack from Baldwin, who now occupied the city of Edessa. Kerboga made the decision that before they destroy the Crusader army, they should first destroy the Crusader kingdom of Edessa. This way, there would be no possibility of being flanked in the coming battle. It seemed like a good idea at the time. What was a tiny detour in the grand scheme of things? Besides, he had 40,000 soldiers marching with him. No one could possibly stand up against such a brutal army. The best way to describe this army was a counter-crusade of equal size and equal diversity. When he made it to the city of Edessa and besieged the city, he quickly realized the scope of this feat was just too much, and he called off the attack. His goal was Antioch, and if he wasted all his time on Edessa, the troops might abandon him. So the siege was called off and the mighty army marched through the valley and headed for the city of Antioch where the crusader army waited outside of the walls. The countdown to a showdown had begun. The crusaders heard that a massive army was coming their way and scouts were sent out to see just how big they were. When the scouts caught up to the approaching army, their jaws dropped. They swarmed everywhere, from the mountains and the different roads like sands of the sea. Their infinite thousands were so great that they couldn't even estimate their size. It was an infinite sea of soldiers. The scouts returned to the crusader camp on May 28th, and they told everyone that a massive army was on their way, and in only a few days they would wipe out every crusader. An emergent meeting was called, and the princes gathered once again in a tent to discuss their plans. Bohemond once again brought up his idea that whomever takes control of the city will be the one to govern over it. Only this time, everyone agreed. Everyone except for Raymond of Toulouse. But these men were honorable men, and they warned Bohemond that he had sworn an oath to Emperor Alexios, and if he broke his word to the Roman Emperor, he would lose all his honor and would be outcasted from the nobility of Europe. So Bohemond conceded that point. If the Roman Emperor Alexios comes to our aid and helps us take the city, I, Bohemond, son of Robert Giscard, will give the city of Antioch to his majesty. It was also decided that maybe they should not tell the others that a massive army was descending on them and that there was a great chance that everyone present at the siege was about to be killed. That can negatively affect the morale of their troops. 
Tancred returned to his post on the western side of the wall, and dialogue was reopened between the man inside of the high tower. If the gates were not opened soon, everything would be lost. And for some reason, the Turks always knew what they were up to, and it turned out that the Turkish governor of Antioch had sent Muslim spies dressed as Armenians into the Crusader camps. Bohemond found out about these spies and had them brought to the main gate of the city, where the spies had their throats cut and their skins peeled off their bodies and cooking spits ran up their asses before roasting their bodies over fires for all the Turks to see. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, if the Crusaders were so starving and they were roasting these spies over a fire, did anyone smell their cooking meat and think, hmm, maybe we should eat them? Well, stay tuned. Luckily for everyone, the Roman Emperor Alexios was coming to the rescue, and he had with him thousands of warriors, some sailing the seas and others marching on land. They had supplies and weapons and food. This was everything the Crusaders needed to take the city, and with his contributions, take back the city of Antioch for the Roman Empire. He wasn't far away, but neither was Kerboga. The real question was, who was going to get there first? Meanwhile, back at the siege, the people were freaking out, especially those who knew the truth. An army larger than the Crusaders was only a day or two away. Panic started to rattle the weaker men, and it became clear that they made the right decision not to let the main Crusaders know the truth about Kerboga. But there was one man whose nerves finally cracked, and this man was Stephen of Blois. He must have been very nervous, constantly looking at the horizon for dust clouds of the approaching army. Because one night, on June 2nd, 1098 CE, Stephen cracked. He muttered to those closest to him that he was ill, and to be honest, he probably felt ill from the fear of being cut into pieces. He gathered up his closest knights and deserted the crusaders. He made his way to the port and fled for his homeland. And on his way back home, he ran into the Roman Emperor Alexios. I've come to honor my oath and aid the Crusaders. Do not fear, my brother, said the Roman Emperor. Forget it! They're all dead! We're all going to die, cried Stephen. Run! Run while you can! Again, we are paraphrasing. This is not what they said. But it does a good job of portraying what happened, because Alexios believed Stephen, and fearing that all of the Crusaders were already dead, he ordered his army to turn around and return to Constantinople. Now, we don't even know for sure if Alexios was going to make it all the way to Antioch, but what we do know is that he turned around and went home. Who's to say if he would have even made it there in time? We know the true dangers a Roman emperor faces when he leaves the capital city for too long. It opens the windows for usurpers to take the throne. And it's too bad too, because had he continued to Antioch and made it there in time, history would have favored Alexios 
much, much more. I mean, we know the truth. But the people at the time knew only one thing. When they needed the emperor the most, he was not there. So you can't argue the facts. The next day, on June 3rd, the crusaders arranged for a decoy. They sent 700 crusaders on a march away from the camp. From the bird's eye view of the high tower, it looked like the crusaders were deserting their post. And this let the guard down of the Turks stationed in the towers. But later that night, the 700 troops returned to the western gate, where Tancred and Bohemond had made a deal with the guard in the tower. A rope was lowered over the edge of the tower, and the crusaders attached a ladder. They now had a way up the side of the mighty walls. But who was going to go first? And was this another trick? The commanders shouted at their troops, and one by one they climbed up the ladder and scaled the walls of Antioch. It was a tense moment as the men scaled the walls, and to make it worse, a few men were burdened by their heavy armor, and they fell off the ladder and crashed onto the side of the rocks below. Everyone held their breath and gasped, expecting the screams of the mangled crusaders to trigger a response. But nothing came of it. And still more men scaled the ladders. The men climbed over the wall, killed any guards nearby, and made their way to the gate. And once the gate opened up, Bohemond gave the order to charge. The Norman knights rushed through the gates and stormed the city in the early hours of the morning. The Normans came in screaming. They shouted and swung their swords at anything that moved, killing indiscriminately. The chaos brought fear among those inside the walls, and instead of fighting the invaders in the darkness of the early morning, the defenders turned and ran for their lives. The Norman knights massacred everyone until finally the dawn broke, and they hoisted Bohemond's banner above the walls for the crusaders to see. And while all of the killing was going on, the frightened Christian inhabitants that still remained inside rushed the main gates and opened them for the bulk of the crusader army. Now, thousands upon thousands of crusaders swarmed across the bridge and entered the main gate of Antioch. The Christians assumed that since they were the ones who opened the gates for the crusaders and declared themselves followers of Christ, oh, they must be spared by these crusaders. Well, that was not the case, because as the crusaders charged through the gates, the local Christians weren't even able to speak a word before swords were plunged into their chests and bellies, their limbs hacked off, and their blood flowed through the cobblestone streets of Antioch. There was no mercy, no prisoners. The crusaders killed everyone in sight. It didn't matter if it was children running through the streets or mothers or elderly people. When the crusaders saw them, they cut them down, and they stabbed their bodies on the ground. It was a massacre. An eyewitness later wrote, All the streets of the city on every side were full of corpses, so that no one could endure to be there because of the stench, nor could anyone walk along the narrow pass of the city except over the corpses of the dead. 
If you remember our description of the city of Antioch from our previous episode, this city went up the side of the mountain, where a citadel rested at the peak that looked over the entire valley. It is from this point that the Turks were able to watch all the Crusaders' movement. Well, as the slaughter spread from street to street, the Turkish garrison and their leader fled to the citadel, which they barred shut, and the Crusaders were unable to break through. Seeing this as his only time to escape, the leader of the Turks in Antioch, a man named Yagisian, escaped out of the Iron Gate and wandered through the mountains, hoping to make it to safety. Unfortunately for him, there were Armenians scouring the mountains, and they captured Yagisian and brought him back to the Crusaders within the city. However, the Armenians were not that good at transporting Yagisian, because by the time they returned to the city, all they had left was a Turk's severed head. <laughs> a little bit of humor. Yeah, I like that. The Crusaders took stock of everything left in the city and found out there was nothing left. They had starved the city for so long that there was no food, there was no supplies, and the horses the Turks kept alive were not the stocky war horses used for cavalry. They were light mares used for steppe land warfare. They were in the city for only one day before they saw the dust cloud on the horizon. As they ran to the city walls, they saw the massive army of Kerboga enter the valley. It was larger than any army they had ever faced before. The gates were quickly shut, and just like that, the crusaders went from besieging the city to defending the city. My, how the tables have turned. The crazy part of all this is that Kerboga could have annihilated the Crusaders if he had shown up just one day earlier. If only they didn't waste three weeks besieging the city of Edessa. My, how history would be different if the First Crusade had failed. Another important factor to recognize here is that the Muslim army didn't know the true intentions of the Crusaders. They all just assumed this was a mercenary hired by the Roman Emperor with the sole task of taking back their land lost a few decades before. They had no idea this was a holy war. The Crusaders watched as Kerboga and his men took up their positions in the exact formation the Crusaders had been a few days earlier. Only Kerboga's army was not starving and not tired. They were ready for a long fight. The Crusaders, on the other hand, were starving, tired, and trapped behind walls. And just where the hell was the Roman Emperor? They cursed Alexius' name. One of the brave crusaders led a charge against one of the leaders of Kerboga's army and managed to spook them. The crusaders chased the retreating Turks only to watch them turn around and encircle the crusader and then shoot everyone down with arrows. As the Turks surrounded the city, they made contact with the only Turkish garrison left in the city the troops still holding out in the citadel on top of the mountain. Kerboga's strategy was different than the crusaders. Instead of starving them out, he led a large army into the mountains and attacked the city from the iron gate at the top of the mountain. The crusaders struggled to defend the gap in their defenses by stationing most of their men near the citadel, while wave after wave of Turks tried to storm through the narrow gates. The hand-to-hand combat was ruthless and bloody, but the crusaders managed to keep the Turks from spilling into the main section of the city, 
While the Turks stormed in through the citadel, they launched another attack against the walls, hoping to overrun the Crusaders with sheer numbers. This intense fighting continued for two straight days. One of the Crusaders, who lived to tell his story later, wrote that a man who had food had no time to eat, and those with water had no time to drink. There was only fighting. From dawn to dusk, they fought the Turks as they tried to storm through the gates at the top of the mountain. I just want to jump in right here and say this really reminds me of the Battle of Gondor. In these tense days of fighting in the hot summer heat, with no food and barely any water, Many knights abandoned their posts and threw ropes over the walls to run for safety in the mountains. But these men were hunted down and shot full of arrows. Of all the struggles the crusaders went through up until this point, this was the worst. The most intense and saw the most casualties. Bohemond himself was in the thick of the fighting, swinging his sword as Turks surrounded him and narrowly escaped death on many occasions. Another knight from Italy known as Mad Hugh, defended one of the towers all by himself, stabbing his spear at the Turks who tried to take the tower. It was non-stop killing, wave after wave, with no end in sight. Bohemond found out there were men hiding in some of the houses, and he ordered the buildings to be set on fire. But you know what happens when one house catches fire in the middle of the hot summer? The fire spread and soon the entire block was on fire, and then several blocks were ablaze. And then nearly a quarter of the city of Antioch was burned, and still the Turks swarmed the gates. This battle is one of the bloodiest battles of the time. There were thousands upon thousands of corpses, and the fighting never let up. As the Crusaders were about about to collapse from exhaustion, and the city burned in the night, a bright comet was seen in the sky. And the Crusaders took this as a sign of hope. (laughs) Funny thing, the Turks saw this as a bad omen. So I guess comets can be interpreted as anyone wants to interpret them. Either way, the Crusaders found a new source of hope, and the Turks fled in the night. Kerboga's army suffered so many casualties in this battle that he changed his strategy. No longer would they assault the city head-on. Now they would turn to the traditional siege warfare of surrounding and starving the inhabitants. Days turned into weeks, and several failed attempts were made by the crusaders to surprise attack the Turkish camps, while several Turks failed at sailing the walls. Many crusaders died of starvation, while others turned to boiling the skins of dead horses and weeds growing inside the walls. All hope seemed lost, and soon the men would die. But one of the men in the crusader camp started to have visions, probably from starvation. But nonetheless, he had to report what he saw. He told the crusaders that he had a vision from God, that there was a holy relic hidden within the city that would give the crusaders the power of God and would aid them in defeating the Turkish army. Usually when a crazy man comes up to you and says that God has buried a holy relic, that he will save everyone from certain death, ignore them. But there was no harm in letting the madman share his thoughts. He said that the spear that pierced Jesus' ribs while he was crucified was here, in the city, buried under the foundation of the Basilica of St. Peter. Most people looked at this man as crazy, including Bishop Adamar, 
who was a devout follower of Christ and the holy relics. But why was Bishop Adamar skeptical of the holy lance being present in the city? Was it because it was crazy to think that a spear tip would survive a thousand years? No, not at all. It is because Bishop Adamar was shown the holy lance while he was touring Constantinople. Luckily, one of the prominent crusaders believed the babbling crazy man and commissioned an excavation of the holy basilica. At this point, what was a harm in a little vandalism? Twelve men were given to the crazy man and they spent all day tearing up the floor inside of the holy church, but they found nothing. Then, just before all hope was lost, the crazy man jumped barefoot into the pits and knelt down and prayed to the Heavenly Father. As he finished his prayer, he looked down and saw a tiny piece of metal, which he definitely didn't put there himself, and held the rusted piece of metal up for the others to see. Now, we can look back and say, hey, that is stupid. Who cares that he found a spearhead? How could that make a difference? But it did. Morale is very important with everything we do in life. And it is most important when people are in dire circumstances. If you think all hope is lost, you tend to give up. But when you know that there is a way to succeed, whether it be slight or divine, you find the will deep down inside to keep fighting. And this boost of morale was exactly what the Crusaders needed. One of the survivors of the First Crusade later wrote a letter to the Pope. We were so comforted and strengthened by the discovery and by so many other divine revelations that some of us who were discouraged and fearful beforehand became courageous and resolute to fight and encouraged each other. There was an attempt to make a deal with the Turks. The Crusaders sent Peter the Hermit out of the city walls to speak directly with Kerboga. The fat little hermit, who was probably very skinny by this point, was sent out of the gates and into the Turkish camp where he offered a challenge of single combat where the victor of the battle would determine the outcome of the entire war. This way thousands of lives would be spared. But Kerboga laughed at the little man and told him to send a message back to the Crusaders. Convert to Islam and live, do not, and die. Poor little Peter the Hermit was sent back in shame and told the Crusaders that there was no getting out of this. Desperate, but motivated by God, the Crusaders abandoned their posts on the towers and grouped up for a last stand. They were not going to die in the city they struggled for so long to take. They were going to face off against Kerboga's army in a final showdown. Every soldier and knight was assembled at the gates. An army of over 20,000 men stood ready for the assault. And as the gates opened on one side of the city, the Turks knew something was coming their way. They sent in a force to repel the crusaders, but an entire line of archers fired thousands upon thousands of arrows, forcing the Turks back. And using the cover of heavy arrow fire, the crusaders poured out of the gates. As the crusaders marched out by the thousands, the nearest Turkish garrison prepared to counter their attack. And a messenger was sent riding to warn Kerboga. 
Sir, the crusaders are marching out of the city. We should swarm them and pick them off one by one as they exit the gates. No, said Kerboga, that is what they're expecting us to do. Let them all leave the safety of this city so we can kill all of them at the exact same time. Again, we are paraphrasing, they didn't exactly say this. As soon as the entire crusader army was out of the city and on the battlefield, Kerboga ordered a charge. It wasn't a coordinated and strategic charge. It was more of a charge! The Turkish army was just sent in screaming. No strategy, no plan, just charge the enemy, and by nightfall we will have dinner in Berlin. That's a Black Adder reference for those of you who don't know. The Turks were numerically superior to the Crusaders, but they weren't organized. Whereas the Crusaders were a disciplined group made up of many different armies, all with their own commanders who had been working and planning together. While the Turks had no leader other than Kerboga, who shouted to attack into the backs of the soldiers that were being slaughtered. As Turks fled the assault, Kerboga shouted at the deserters, and soon the entire battlefield became a chaotic and disorganized mess. We learned from Season 1 that once an army formation is broken up, chaos and panic spread from man to man. And what happened was the starving but disciplined crusaders kept their formation and moved systematically towards the Turks, an indestructible wall of swords and spears and arrows, while the Turks had no formation. And when they hit the wall of crusaders, they quickly broke apart. And as soon as the retreat from a few started, the entire army broke up into a stampede, and the Turks retreated and fled in every direction. The mighty army of Kerboga was shattered, and the disorganized army dissolved and fled into the countryside. The crusaders had succeeded in capturing Antioch, and the path to the ports was open. Supplies could once again flow into the city, but for the immediate refreshment, the crusaders plundered the camps of Kerboga and ate their food. For the first time in nearly a year, the crusaders were able to rest. Now according to a poem written by an eyewitness at the siege of Antioch, the man who betrayed Antioch, written by Richard the Hermit, Many Turks had their lives spared by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ and having the bishop baptize them all. One of the Turks among these Christianized was the Turk in the watchtower who lowered the ladder. But Bohemond took this time to voice his anger towards the Roman emperor. He cursed Alexios' name and shouted for everyone to hear. Where was the emperor? He did not come to our aid when we needed him the most. He betrayed us and left us all to die. He played no part in taking the city, and therefore our oaths to him are worthless. The city of Antioch belongs to me. <clears throat> I mean, I mean to the crusaders. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the general context of what he said. As per the agreement between the leaders of the crusading armies, Bohemond was the prince who captured the city, and therefore the city of Antioch fell into the possession of the Norman prince, the man 
descended from Vikings. What we do know for sure is that the news that Bohemond intended to keep Antioch for himself infuriated the Roman court, and that the relationship between Bohemond and Alexios returned to that which it was before the crusade. Bohemond and Alexios were once again mortal enemies. Well, that's it for today. Join us next time on the history of modern Greece. Stay safe and stay awesome.